Hello and welcome to the Radical News Radio Hour with Serene Saade. You're listening to WFNU LP St. Paul Frogtown Community Radio 94.1 FM. Today we have another special episode, our last one for March. Yesterday, March 18th, I had the opportunity to moderate a panel hosted by the Minnesota Women's Press. I also recently had the opportunity to guest edit their latest issue on transforming justice. So we gathered three of the voices together from that issue together to more deeply discuss that work. We'll listen to part of that panel and hear today from Selena Beasley, Robin Wansley Warbla, and Nevada Little Wolf, our panelists, uh, from yesterday's event. Here we go. Thank you. Thanks, Serene. So yeah, I'm the publisher and the editor of Minnesota Women's Press a couple of years now. Uh, I think it was about a year ago, Serene and I started connecting and talking about ways we could collaborate more. And thankfully, thanks to a Minneapolis Foundation grant, we had a pretty official way to work together for the transforming justice issue that we just published in March. There's a lot of additional stories online, some that didn't even make it into print. And as part of that, we wanted to make sure that we had a public forum as well to talk to some of the people in the issue, as well as people who um, just, there's so many stories around transforming justice. So we wanted to have other people's voices in a forum as well. And we normally like to do things in person and obviously everybody gets to do stuff virtually these days, but it does bring a lot of people into the room from wherever they are uh, that we very much actually appreciate. So, um, so with that spirit in mind, that's kind of what this forum is about. We're gonna hear from a couple specific people involved in the transforming justice coverage that we've been able to do together. Um, and Serene's gonna lead the conversation and we will have a little bit of time at the end for questions. Uh, send things that you wanna ask in chat and I'll kind of moderate that and give Serene some clues at the end about what we've got waiting for us there. So with no further ado, Serene, take it away. All right, so welcome all. Super glad that we're able to do this um, and thank you all for joining us. Um, as Mickey said, my name is Serene. I'm the executive director for The Uptake, which is a small community news organization. We cover social issues and community organizing across the Twin Cities, and we do so with a racial justice lens and with um, the goal of wanting to use community journalism to build racial justice. I was the guest editor for the uh, Transforming Justice issue, um, and one of the writers actually have a piece on that, hopefully coming out next week on the intersections of COVID and health insurance. I'm going to leave it to our, our panelists to introduce themselves, but I'm just so glad that Selena, Nevada, and Robin could join us to talk about um, their work. I'm really inspired by all three of them, and I think we have a lot to learn from all three of them. So uh, I'm going to ask each panelist to introduce themselves, um, to please include, um, uh, to talk about what their passions are around disruption um, or reform and, and what the term transforming justice means to them. So um, your names, just a little bit about what your work and passion is and what that term transforming justice means to you. Um, why don't we throw it to Nevada first? Miigwech, Serene. Um, Ani and everyone, my name is Nevada Little Wolf and I am a citizen of Leech Lake Nation um, as well as the state of Minnesota. And um, I, Minnesota, like Northern Minnesota particularly is my homeland. So. I have um, deep relationship to this place. Generations of my ancestors um, have been here for a long time before um, uh, originally we were on the East Coast and migrated here. And I also just wanna acknowledge the Dakota people who also share um, this homeland here in Minnesota. Um, you know, I've done a lot of work throughout my life. I think starting as a youth myself and doing youth programming, working um, around child advocacy, um, running for office, um, setting local policy as a local elected official on the Iron Range, um, you know, working in the court system and, and seeing disparity like in real life and uh, working with families that were really negatively impacted by so many different, um, different things, whether it was poverty or uh, chemical dependency or mental health or access issues, um, education, right? And um, I've done a lot of work in my life around 
developing leadership, like women's leadership, particularly, I think is, um, I've had a longstanding relationship, I would say, with the, the, women's, um, the women's press and Mickey and the work that you all do around amplifying women's work. And I think in Minnesota, um, I was really fortunate to be a part of developing rural and indigenous women's leadership models based out of the assets of our community here and um, build out models for national women's leadership programming. And um, I mean, I think some of you know, I've been the political director for Women Winning. I was a political director for the Biden-Harris campaign this last year um, and currently am the campaign manager and executive director for the Page Amendment in Our Children, Minnesota. And so, you know, when I think about what is disruption and transforming justice, it's really, um, I feel like I've spent my whole life trying to get upstream from these issues that impact um, children and families and my community. And, you know, I, I think that the way that our systems have been set up, um, our political systems and our policymaking, you know, really have largely left out the voices of community. And, and that's why we see such disparity. And so um, from the way that I do work, it's really around leadership development and also around um, getting at policy that really centers community voices and cultural perspectives. Wonderful. Selena, you're up. Bujuga Kinawia was our Banesi Queen in Dishnakas, Mapah Nindi Dame, Ogakani Nindujiba, Femijigama, Ninda, Nindanoki, Chemical Health Programs, Minawa, Nagabe, Kikadaso, Igamig. Hello, everybody. My name is Selena Beasley. I'm an enrolled member of the Red Lake Nation. I currently work for the Red Lake Chemical Health Programs as the Administrative Officer. And I also am attending college at the Red Lake Nation College. So my schedule is pretty full. Um, in my area, um, my professional area of working with people that struggle with addictions, um, a lot of times they are having issues with the courts and with police. And that kind of is where a lot of my experience comes in as far as working with these entities and seeing the disparities that surround the Native American population in our area um, and the minorities, because the, the area I live is in Bemidji, Minnesota. And I'm not sure if you guys are familiar with that, but Bemidji is a primarily um, non-Native town. It's primarily white and it's surrounded by three reservations, um, Red Lake, Leech Lake, and White Earth. So there is, it's like a central hub for the reservations. And we have a very small African-American um, community in, in our area, and I'm, my, I'm married to an African-American man. So our children are of mixed race. And, um, you know, some of, the some of the reasons that I jumped into these disparities and seeing these is because I felt that um, if I didn't take action or I didn't stand up and do something to invoke change, that my children were going to be part of this system that um, seems to target minorities in our area. You know, um, I wanted to look at change. I wanted to look at and see um, where we can, where we have our voice, right? So I um, started attending city council meetings um, because I was made aware that they were going to be looking at developing an oversight committee or advisory committee for the police department. And I also attended the county commissioners meeting because I believe that this is like, we have multi-jurisdictional um, areas here, right? We have our sheriff's department, we have our police department, we have our tribal department, and we have our federal agencies all working in this area. So I wanted across the board, you know, I wanted, I wanted to see change implemented within all of these areas. And I wanted people to work together towards that change. So I was trying to trying to have a voice and I, I even volunteered to be part of that advisory committee myself um, to really look at things from an internal view and see, you know, why is why are we having this disproportionate number of either American Indians or um, African Americans in our county jails? You know, we're we're about 11 to 12 percent of the population here. And if you go on the roster, it's where 80 to 90% is minorities in our jail. So those were numbers that I brought. Um, 
And I really wanted to understand why is that happening? You know, so that's, as a mother, you know, I worry about my children leaving when they leave in, in the day and are they going to come home to me at night? So that was really my driving force and, and why I wanted to be part of this. Me, which, you know. Thank you. Robin. Hello, everyone. I'm Robin Wansley Wallaba. Um, I just want to thank you all and uh, the Women's Press for having me tonight. I'm glad to also speak alongside these amazing panelists. Um, but in terms of who I am, I am a Chicago native. I'm a current uh, Cedar Riverside resident. I'm a democratic socialist. I'm a scholar, currently a student at the University of Minnesota. I'm a community activist, a labor organizer. I work uh, around protecting public education. Um, at Education Minnesota, and I'm also currently running for Minneapolis City Council to represent War Two. Um, and this question around passion, and I would say it's it's my passion is directly linked to transformative or transforming justice. Um, I grew up in Chicago, one of the most uh, racially segregated cities in the country. Um, also, historically, has been a, a blue and true city, so under democratic um, leadership, but still have seen some of the grossest racial disparities and have personally been impacted that, by that and witnessing my own loved ones, um, my own neighbors uh, be targeted and cycled in and out of our criminal justice system simply because we've had elected officials that's prioritized the interests of corporations in our city um, and for, uh, prioritize the interests of profits as opposed to investing in the public programs and infrastructures that actually keeps our communities um, safe that keeps or allows our communities to thrive. Um, so as a result, my loved ones had no access to quality uh, public health care or public um, education, um, lack of uh, access to quality and unionized employment um, in our city. And as a result, when you deprive people of their ability to um, take care of their livelihoods and that of their loved ones. Um, they're, they're forced to choose other ways of making that happen. And unfortunately, that resulted in my family spending many of our years supporting incarcerated loved ones and also funneling our limited resources as working class and poor Black folks um, into that very criminal justice system. Um, so that journey from visiting a loved one starting at the age of one um, at our local prison has followed me all throughout of my life and has led me to question why do we live in a world where, and this became very clear for me as a college student, and I went to Carleton, um, which has students who come from some of the richest and most affluent backgrounds um, in our country. How is it that my fellow peers who I've seen engage in um, criminal offenses, doing drug usage and things of that nature, they get a slap on their hand, but my cousin gets sentenced 10 years of his life for selling small marijuana <laughs> packets to earn a living. And from that, that lived experience and the lived experience of moving here and every year having to be on the front lines with my neighbors at a site where uh, another black man or a black woman has been killed by the police and then having to organize actions um, to show up at uh, the attorney general's or the, the county attorney's office to show up at city council meetings, to show up at the mayor's house and ask why are we allowing a criminal justice system? Why are we protecting a criminal justice system that only promotes uh, violence for black and brown communities, that only promotes a trajectory of, of incarceration for black and brown individuals and indigenous individuals and children? How can we continue to pour justifiably money into that system that does not help the well-being of our communities, that does not lead to people being able to take care of their livelihoods, to having access to quality jobs, access to public education, access to quality health care. That is a problem. And that has shaped my entire life journey of getting at the core of what creates a public system, a criminal justice system that produces inequitable outcomes for very specific communities. And for me, that's meant 
organizing alongside our social movements, our grassroots groups around demands, um, not begging, not pleading, not lobbying, but literally organizing our collective power based in our lived experiences to transform those very systems, not to reform, not to protect, not to reinforce, because that's how we are in this predicament that we're in right now. So that's my experience. I'm coming from it from a very organized organizers background um, and and just being tired of having to be on the front lines time and time again because we have failed to check or transform a system that we know is corrupt and racist and violent. Thank you so much for that. Welcome to all the panelists. So we're going to move into this next section. We're going to be asking each panelist about two questions each. Uh, we'll try and make them snappy in, in them and make it through quick and then we'll have some Q&A at the end. Um, so to each of the panelists, um, I'm going to start with uh, Nevada again. She's top of my list over here, um, literally my agenda, and uh, talk more deeply about the work you've done around education reform, especially for the last year with the Page Amendment. Um, and then as you think about the Page Amendment, um, one of the questions is, do you think the Page Amendment would is something that would impact, for example, the the work that happens around the school to prison pipeline. So we'll start with that first question around just what your work has looked like and then we'll move from there. Great. I mean, I just, first of all, have to say, I'm, I'm in, I feel like I'm really honored to be in such good company with uh, Selena and Robin. You both are just powerhouses. Um, this is gonna be a really, I just dynamic conversation. Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm working on the page amendment and um, I'm just processing a lot of what I just heard because there's so much interconnectedness with this work. Um, you know, I mentioned as I introduced myself that I'm always looking to get upstream when I'm working, when I'm looking at issues that I'm go going to work on and put my, my time, my talent, my efforts towards. And when we look at um, the Minnesota State Constitution, which is our governing, governing document in Minnesota, I mean, you can't get more upstream in terms of policymaking than having um, taking a look at that document. And right now, our current education provision, um, which was written in 1857, and I just want to put that into context for folks um, here listening. Um, in 1854 and 1855 in Minnesota, uh, the government was signing treaties with Anishinaabe people. And what what were those treaties? Largely were land grabs, right, for resources. Um, and 1857 um, was before this, um, the Civil War, right? And like, we still had slavery uh, legal in many parts of the country. And it was also the year of the Dred Scott case. And so when you think like Robin's talking about the, you know, like um, who, who are the systems designed for? Like in 1857, when our education provision was written, in Minnesota, it was not written with indigenous uh, people in mind. It was not written with uh, black folks in mind. It couldn't have even imagined um, the future of Minnesota and the diversity of Minnesota and the people who will live here today in 2021. And so when we look at education disparities in Minnesota and there have been over 100 pieces of legislation that have been passed in the 10 years or so and I want to be really clear that I, I like honor every piece of legislation that has gone into effect. The work that has gone into that, it's hard work. Um, and I, everything is done with such like care and effort. And yet, even after 100 pieces of legislation around education have been passed, we have not seen educational disparities decrease. They continue to persist. So there isn't one piece of legislation or 100 pieces collectively that have done anything to move the dial and change our education disparities for black, indigenous, children of color and low income children in Minnesota. Um, and you know, we really, in Minnesota, I grew up here, right? And grew up with the value that education is the highest priority, the most important thing. It's a thing that will get you out of poverty. It will give you opportunities you've never had before. And that we have exceptional education in Minnesota. And so I think that, um, again, kind of like understanding, Selena was talking about this data desegregation around, um, you know, like who's incarcerated and, and what, you know, kind of the percentage of our population versus the percentage of incarceration. I mean, that data desegregation is really important um, in the same way around our education, because we are not first in the nation 
on education for our communities of color. We're last, we're like at the bottom. And so, you know, when we're looking at the page amendment, it, it's a huge disruption, right? Because, and it's a catalyst for change. Uh, we hope to get this on the ballot for 2022 to have Minnesota voters um, have the ability to vote on it because our polling shows that over 80% of Minnesotans support um, a change for quality education and a civil right for children to have access to that quality. And I'm gonna be clear here, public education, it's quality public education. Um, and so that's really, that's what I've been working on. And I think kind of moving into the second part of your question about the school to prison pipeline. Uh, early in my career, I was, I like founded a couple of different youth programs and youth organizing. Um, I also started out as an organizer like Robin, um, was trained in Chicago by some of the best organizers in the country and um, did a lot of work in Northeast Minnesota in the rural areas and the tribal communities. And we had that same thing where I was working with, I mean, schools and judges and attorneys and social workers and mental health providers and continued to talk about how we were seeing our children at higher, you know, higher rates and higher rates being incarcerated. And every single person in the system would tell me, no, Nevada, you can't call us racist. That's wrong. And you got to stop saying this because, um, you know, like, you might not have a job anymore if you keep talking about this kind of stuff. And, and it was just really frustrating because I'm like, well, then you, like, you need to explain to me then why am I working with so many families and children that are, that are being taken out of schools and then put into like detention facilities. Um, and then we had a really great county attorney, um, Melanie Ford, who brought in some resources to actually desegregate that data. And we found exactly what Selena is talking about. The same thing is that um, very small percentage of the population, African-American, American Indian um, youth, and then exponential numbers in terms of um, juvenile detention. And so that starts in an education system and then it goes from there. So absolutely the Page Amendment will have impact on that um, school to prison pipeline because if we're focusing on individual children, not on a system, like an adequate system, which is what the current language says, Instead, we, we will focus on quality education and meeting the children's need, not the system's need, the children's need. Wonderful, thank you. So um, I wanna talk briefly about, I know there's been critiques of the Page Amendment and I wanna give you a, a, a chance to talk about those as well. Um, so my question is, there's concern expressed by some in the public that the Page Amendment uh, was created by a banker and a lawyer, the former Minnesota Supreme Court Justice Ellen Page, and not something that's endorsed or supported or created by the state's teachers union. Um, can you respond to that? Absolutely. Um, first of all, I would say that um, Justice Page, you know, wrote the descending the dissent argument in Skeen versus the state of Minnesota, which really established our education provision and our requirement as adequate. And he made the argument that no, actually we need to have a quality standard. Um, his descending uh, opinion of course was a, dis a dissent. And um, you know, Alan Page, Justice Alan Page and his wife started the Page Foundation for Education. He has a school that's named after him. And so I wanna be really clear that Justice Alan Page is not like a corporate lawyer or something even close to that, um, he has done a tremendous amount of work in community around building community and working for justice. And that's what he's doing now with the Page Amendment and, and taking all of his decades of experience as um, a Supreme Court justice and bringing it to this work to really address, to figure out what is, the, what is the way that we can actually address these disparities. And we're very fortunate to have Justice Alan Page a part of um, the work. And indeed the amendment is named for him. Um, President Kashkari, um, Neil Kashkari, he's the president at the Federal Reserve Bank of Minneapolis. And I mean, if you know anything about the Federal Reserve Bank of Minneapolis, one of their highest priorities um, is that they're working towards full employment for people in Minnesota. And so what leads to full employment? Um, an educated and prepared workforce. So why would they be interested in helping with the page amendment? and researching and helping to understand like the disparities, it's, it's twofold. One thing is that we have 
um, changing demographics in Minnesota and across the country, right? So um, our state is gonna look vastly different in, in the very near, near future. And if we're not educating our children and we continue to operate in a system where these disparities exist, our state is gonna be in a really, um, it's just not gonna be in a good place for the future and for what, we, what our needs are and to continue to be a leader. Um, in, in terms of the teachers union not being a part of this, like I can't speak for the teachers union. They have to speak for themselves. Like they're, we have invited them to the table to have conversations with us. Justice Allen Page has met with um, President Denise Becht. In fact, they work together on Governor Wall's Do North plan. Um, we continue to keep that door open and we have asked them to share with us what their concerns are. And I'll tell you, I mean, I'm, I started as um, on the Page Amendment in like November, December. And the for all the time that I've been on working on this, I have not gotten anything from um, the teachers union to, to engage with us around what is it that they're looking for? Like what will help strengthen the Page Amendment language? Because we are not opposed to strengthening the language and we wanna understand that. So, I mean, I, I don't know if there's an issue that they feel like they should have been the one to create and develop this, but nobody was stopping them from doing that. And indeed we have really asked them to be a part of this work with us. Thank you for that. So um, up next, we're gonna move to uh, Selena. Um, Selena, um, in the March issue of the Minnesota Women's Press, you describe what you have gone through in, Bemid uh, in Bemidji to push for a citizen review board for the city's police department. What prompted you to make that effort and what is the status of that effort today? Thank you. So I would have to say, I would go back to um, the George Floyd murder in May of last year. Shortly after that, <clears throat> the community here in Bemidji wanted to hold a vigil. Um, and during that vigil, we met um, and a group of us uh, walked over to um, the police department from the waterfront. And we carried signs and we wanted justice, right? Um, for what had happened. And all too often there is police brutality, you know, there is neglect. There are things that happen that, that causes the death of inmates or people that are being arrested. Um, the Beltrami County Jail had had three um, deaths very recently within the previous three years of George Floyd. And those mothers um, are still fighting the county because of those deaths. Um, one is Cardell Shirell. Um, he passed away of, of um, Guillain-Barre syndrome in our jail because there was medical neglect that happened. Um, and that's still ongoing today. You know, that, that case, he, he died in the jail cell, you know, on the floor. Um, there was one that did not receive the mental health services that they needed in the jail and com successfully committed suicide. And a 26-year-old man died, died of a heart condition, you know, and so I did not want to become one of those mothers. You know, my heart goes out to them and I support them and I wanted to be there for them and stand with them to fight for their justice for their children. And that's what really motivated me to be part of this is that why are healthy people going into jails and not making it back out? You know, and why is it the black and brown people that, that this is happening to? And so when we went to the, when, when our organization, you know, went to the police department, um, there were police outside. And we were initially told, the organizers were initially told that we, there was not going to be any police engagement. You know, we were just going to march there. We were going to have our, um, our say while we were there, you know. And then we were gonna go back to the waterfront, but there were officers outside and that didn't go well with some members of the group. One of the officers that were outside were also part of a fatal shooting um, that occurred of a family member of mine. Um, so it was just really difficult to have those officers out in 
on in the streets when we were told that there were there wasn't going to be anybody there you know we didn't go there to cause destruction or vandalize or anything but that invoked emotions and some people um marched by the police vehicles and the cops jumped in their police vehicles they put their police vehicle in gear and they reversed out and while they were reversing out they hit two people that were marching and thankfully they were okay they did seek medical attention um because of that incident the city was put on a curfew so that night everybody was told you know you have to go on curfew everybody has to be home be after um i believe it was 6 p.m or 8 p.m i don't quite remember but it was like so I, I reached out to my children and I said, you know, there's curfew tonight. I want to make sure you're either staying where you're at or you're going to be home, right? I don't want to have to worry about you. And both my kids were like, I'm going to come home, you know? So they both came home and that was really re reassuring to me. And, but I just felt on edge, right? I just, I just felt like, oh, this doesn't feel good, right? This doesn't feel good. This feels like, I don't know, like it's, it's not comfortable. And the next morning, um, I looked on social media and I saw that a gun owner in a neighboring county put up a social media post that he was quote unquote um, guarding the city and that he wasn't gonna let any of the Minneapolis shenanigans happen here. And this is just a citizen, <laughs> this is not law enforcement, he is not deputized. He is a gun shop owner in a neighboring county. So then it was like, what is going on here? You know, like, why is there citizens, quote unquote, armed watching commute over our community when we have law enforcement here? And if law enforcement can't handle it, we should have a system in place where we, um, are recruiting help from neighboring county law enforcement that are trained to deal with any issues of, um, you know, where they're getting calls or where they need law enforcement, right? Because I teach my children how to interact with law enforcement. I teach them how to be respectful. I teach them what they need to do. But I never taught my child how to meet a white man that is a gun shop owner and a blacked out truck. If that man had saw my child out past curfew, what could have happened to my child? Because to my child, that's not an identified law enforcement officer. That's a white man in a blacked out truck that's armed. And that just really invoked fear in me that this happened. So I started gathering information you know, from the gun shop owner, it's off-grid armory. I, I, I took that post and I saved it. And then we went to law enforcement. You know, that's when I went to the, the um, county meeting and I was like, hey, you know, this to me seems like it's vigilante, right? It's quote unquote vigilante. You look up, you look it up and that's what it is, right? And so I bring that I bring that attention to vigil anti because the sheriff and the police department are both denying that they gave this individual permission to do that. So I said, then charges need to be brought because they are in our community, you know, and publicly sharing that they're doing this. So then it triggered an internal investigation and we were investigated by a neighboring outside source, which was Crow Wing County. And Crow Wing County is down by Mille Lacs and Brainerd. And it's just kind of like a bigger Bemidji. Um, white with a small population of, of minorities. And I really didn't think like they would do a thorough, like, are they really gonna hold them responsible for what happened? Later on, after the investigation was complete by Crow Wing County, they decided that Off-Grid Army did, Armory did nothing wrong and the Bemidji Police Department officer then came forward and said that he gave them permission to set up. So went back on their initial words saying that they recruited people to go in and say, yeah, we told them they could be there. 
So then after an army unit is not charged, the police department, quote unquote, did what they did according to Minnesota statute where they could deputize other people to be, to be law enforcement in our area. There were also other allegations that while these people were in these blacked out trucks, that they were chasing um, juvenile female Native Americans that, down an alley. And the girl ran into somebody's backyard because they were out sitting outside in a bonfire and, and sought refuge because they had brandished a firearm. So these are all very serious allegations of what is happening by civilians against the black and brown community in my area. And that is why I was like, I refuse to take this type of, you know, I feel like it's an abuse of power, right? Like they are supposed to be upholding the law. They're supposed to be trained. They shouldn't be allowing gun shop owners that have no training in law enforcement, right? To come in laws to enforce a curfew. So that was my motivation for going to city council meetings. And that was my motivation for going to um, county commissioner meetings because I wanted, I didn't want this swept under the rug accountability and I wanted action to change and prevent that from ever happening again. Wonderful. Thank you for that. Um, we're going to move to Robin and then we have some Q&A questions uh, for all three panelists, um, including some questions about action steps, uh, which is that third question that we're skipping past for each person for now. So Robin, uh, you're up. Um, and I want to thank you, Selena, again for that, because your story is really powerful and I really want to learn more and we'll make sure to include a link to that story um, someplace where you can find it on the Facebook page. Um, so Robin, you've had quite the journey uh, getting to where you are now as an organizer fighting against police violence and police militar militarization. Uh, for people who are not familiar with your journey, for listeners and audience members who are here who are not familiar, can you speak a little bit more deeply about your path from Chicago to Minnesota? Um, even you've done research overseas and how that's shaped your perspectives now? Yeah, thanks for that question. Um, as I shared earlier, um, I identify as a democratic socialist and I'm actually running as a democratic socialist because of my life experience. Um, I also shared earlier, um, I'm originally from Chicago and what I will say about Chicago is if you ever needed an example that affirms that um, the system of racial capitalism is unreformable and unredeemable. And when I say racial capitalism, it's the system that we have now and we've all touched on of having a market driven system um, led by corporate forces um, that um, really relies on the extraction of of resources of labor, typically the freed or enslaved labor of uh, formal colonized beings being African-American or folks of African-American descent, our indigenous folks, uh, the extraction and stealing of land, um, such as the land that we're inhabiting right now um, that belong to uh, indigenous folks, um, and the extraction of, of influence that happens through our, our political processes, um, all with the, the goal of protecting the interests of and the profits of, of those who hold wealth in our communities. And that largely requires um, racist dynamics to take place. As I mentioned, who are constantly providing free labor in this world? It's typically black and brown and indigenous folks um, who are experiencing the brunt of our exploitive relationship with the world and with our, our businesses is usually black and brown and indigenous folks and poor woke, uh, white folks as well. Um, but that aside, racial capitalism is, is obviously the failures of that system um, is very apparent in Chicago. If, if you ever want to see it, just take a visit there if you have it. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, you know, Chicago um, is historically a democratic uh, democratically represented uh, city. Um, but again, it still remains to be one of the worst racially segregated cities in the US and overall horrible place uh, for black people. Um, and those hor horrid conditions um, 
are actually what my own family was uh, subjected to. And largely from the segregation of being um, concentrated to the South side of Chicago. Um, and that experience of, of, of not having access to quality education, quality jo uh, job programs and, and employment opportunities, uh, quality housing, um, it really forced my family to see um, uh, escape out of those conditions through me. It, it essentially made me a golden child of my family. So I grew up with a lot of pressures from my family uh, to use education um, as Nevada talked about and my academic gifts to get not only me, but my family up out of Chicago. So I left home around 2009 on a full ride scholarship to Carlson College um, that's based here in Northfield, Minnesota. But I went there with the sole goal of going corporate, um, which is a far away <laughs> from originally identifying as a socialist. Uh, but I went to go corporate so I could make a crap ton of money so that I could help my loved ones escape. Um, but upon getting to college, I immediately learned that the inequities and the injustices that my family and my co community experienced that I touched on earlier, again, the lack of, you know, access to public programs and infrastructures that allows you to have a quality life, the experience of having to support multiple loved ones through um, their uh journeys in our criminal justice system. And that for me is having a brother who spent 20 years um, in our local criminal justice system for uh, marijuana possessions. Um, learning that those injustices were not just happen chance. They were not just a byproduct of individual decisions or bad decisions um, based by my cousins and my loved ones, but they were a byproduct of decisions made by people in power, particularly politicians, the police department, corporate forces in our city. And then realizing that I understood that one, the corporate path, it while it could help me and my loved ones have a better life, the rest of my community would not have the same chance while those unjust systems and power brokers uh, remained in place. But for me, I was clueless. Like I'm learning, I'm, I'm reading Cornell West, I'm reading, you know, um, Aradati Roy, like all these phenomenal scholars. And at that time, I'm engaging in a lot of activism. We're bringing Michelle Alexander on campus to talk about the new Jim Crow. Uh, we're doing um, organizing trips uh, to different cities to look at how other uh, cities are responding to incarceration, to uh, do service trips, to provide um, support to um, organizations that provide reintegration um, supports to people coming out of prison. I'm, I'm going through all this and I'm like, none of this is working. Somebody gotta be doing this better um, in this world. Um, and that led me to apply uh, for a Thomas J. Watson Fellowship, uh, which essentially allows uh, college students to go and pursue uh, a passion project of their choice, a research project of their choice. And for me, again, I wanted to go and see how are other countries dealing with this, this global trend of, of, of rising incarceration rates. Because at that time, it was all the talk in, in the US. We were, again, Michelle Alexander at the forefront talking about the prison industrial complex. We had our growing Black Lives Matter movement. Also simultaneously, we had our Occupy Wall Street movement that's talking about capitalist conditions, how that linked to, um, you know, the, the pipeline of black, largely black and brown and indigenous folks being routed into criminal justice systems that's being um, uh, given the green light by corporate politicians, um, as well as corporate forces who are partnering with these um, institutions to benefit from uh, free labor. Um, so that they have profits like Wayfair, you can have your furniture, your, your couch um, be created and not pay any cost in labor. Um, or wages. So it looks like somebody's got to do this better. So I went and traveled to Canada. I went to progressive countries that apparently had uh, the answers. They were doing things right. They had lower incarceration rates. So I went to Canada. I went to um, Australia. I went to Dublin, um, Ireland. I went to uh, South Africa. And every country I went to were not only listening to us uh, in terms of like, we had exported um, data practices, surveillance practices, scholarship of how to address criminal justice 
um, in respective countries. The ones that had more than how, how many we uh, folks we have right now incarcerated uh, across the globe, um, we have about more than 20 million folks across the world um, currently incarcerated. I mean, more than 2 million here in the US. Other countries were looking at us and saying, oh, I think we should listen to them. So in countries that originally had smaller populations, they were now exploding. And largely the people who were being routed in their uh, uh, prisons, the demographics were pretty similar to ours. And Canada it was an indigenous community that made up largely um, their incarceration um, population along with individuals of African, the African diaspora, uh, the West Indies, so black and brown folks again. Um, in Ireland, it was poor people and immigrants who were coming to Ireland um, looking for a better life. The same in Australia, you had indigenous and, and um, Maori folks who were being increasingly routed into the criminal justice system. Um, South Africa, it, it was immigrants from neighboring countries who were going through civil war and, and, and um, economic distress that were fleeing their countries for better economic opportunities being routed into prisons. Um, and this is all being championed by, again, liberal politicians um, that are saying that public safety is at the forefront of their minds. And this is how we address also growing economic crises, because that was happening all across um, the, the countries I was traveling to. All of them were enacting austerity measures. They were cutting public programs and services. Australia at that time, they were having a prime minister who was essentially our Trump. Um, and they were uh, having these very racist and violent practices towards the immigrants that were coming into that country. And the way that they dealt with it was cr creating um, uh, horrible detention centers. And again, routing um, existing colonized populations into their criminal justice system. Um, so I came back and was like, oh, so nobody ain't got no answers to this. And not only that, um, I went in uh, during that year looking at also, well, if these populations, the prison populations are growing, then how are we reintegrating people back into the communities once, once they're released? And this is where it gets at anti-capitalism. How do you integrate people who were never integrated into a system to begin with? When you had colonized people in Nevada, you mentioned this, we've had systems under uh, colonial rule that were never designed to honor the humanity or citizenship of indigenous uh, communities who were already inhabiting the lands, but also slaves who were brought over to these countries. Um, with again, the sole purpose of producing labor for corporations to produce labor um, for uh, infrastructure, building light rails and trains, they were never designed to be incorporated in these systems. So how do you reintegrate these people who never had access to quality programs and infrastructures? And essentially I came back and was like, this is a byproduct of capitalism. Like seeing capitalism it, like in this full scale across the world where you literally saw these countries that had resources. It wasn't a shortage of resources, but the prioritization of resources going to expanding criminal justice system instead of expanding social safety nets and public programs and services that actually allows people to provide for themselves and their families. They were not doing that. It's the same thing here. This morning, I was at a tent, encamp um, a tent encampment and it boggled me that this past year we've had tent encampments grow across the city. And time and time again, we're hearing that there's not any money for permanent housing for those folks, but we could send out a whole brigade of police officers to violate and harm and damn near kill unsheltered people. And I think of how much money how much resources is represented in that brigade of police officers who came out this morning that could have went towards making sure those people had the supports that they need. And it's not, again, as I realized in college, that is not accidental. That is the lack of political courage from our po political leaders to prioritize people's needs, prioritizing people's dignity and humanity and making sure our budgets our resources support that. And realizing that under this system of racial capitalism across the globe, you cannot 
it doesn't allow you to invest in people's humanity. It doesn't allow for you to invest in their full integration into the Republic so that they can benefit from the same resources that people who exploited them, that from those who have privilege, have been able to accumulate wealth from. It doesn't allow them access to that. So for me, it brought me back here and seeing this play out again in a liberal place that claimed that it was having low incarceration rates and seeing that, oh no, we're not. We have some of the longest probationary uh, sentences, people on probation for 30 something years here in this state, seeing people being sent back and forth into prisons um, for minor violations, for missing an appointment with their, uh, their, their PO having their lives constantly interrupted and to not see our political leaders do what they need to do to provide the resources in communities that have historically been excluded and divested in. And for me, that is why I'm running. That is at the core of my, my activism, why I was out on the front lines and continue to be on the front lines with workers advocating for increased wages, for advocating for taking and, and taxing affluent and rich folks so that we can have the resources that we need to invest in the public programs that helps our communities thrive. It's why I'm out there on the front line saying we cannot protect the status quo of policing that would rather victimize our unsheltered folks as opposed to providing them the supports that they need. So that's where I've learned <laughs> so far. All right. Well, you actually answered our second question for you. Um, and now in the few minutes we have left, um, in one minute each, what is one action step that we can take, that our audience can take, that our readers can take to engage in the types of work that you do? Not doesn't have to be a specific organization, but is there, what kind of, you know, how can people step into this? How can we be accountable to this kind of work? So one minute each. I'll go really quickly. I mean, mine are gonna be really specific. Next week, um, Page Amendment. Thanks to Mickey, as well as Selena, Robin, and Nevada for joining us for that panel discussion. Just a reminder that you can find the Radical News Radio Hour on Facebook. You can find me on Twitter at CMiriam, and you can listen to previously aired episodes of this show and all of our episodes wherever you find your podcasts. Uh, you can find our website at journalismofcolor.com. Um, that's where you can also find a transcript of this show. And you can also reach our show at radicalnewsradiohour at gmail.com with tips, recommendations, and any questions. For now, thank you all for joining us for this episode of the Radical News Radio Hour. Just a reminder that you're listening to WFNU, LP, St. Paul, Frogtown, Community Radio, 94.1 FM. Thank you for listening. Stay safe, stay healthy, and mask up.